0: Hi all, I'm Omer, one of the pastors here at Spark. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're in the middle of our series on the Gospel according to Luke. As a quick recap, we're in the part of the narrative where what we call Jesus' public ministry of preaching good news and healing people everywhere is really ramping up. And his work and notoriety is gradually spreading out from his hometown area of Galilee. In fact, at this point in the narrative, rumors about this Jesus of Nazareth have gotten all the way up to Herod, the governor of the region. Jesus is beginning to draw crowds by the thousands. Last week, Pastor Danielle talked us through the miraculous way that Jesus fed a crowd of at least 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and a couple fish. Naturally, Jesus acting this way also fed a lot of rumors and it drew a lot of attention from followers and foes. It's on the heels of all this drama that Jesus takes a beat to pray privately with his disciples and have this conversation that's our main text today in Luke chapter 9 verses 18 through 22. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, and he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, you may notice that when trying to answer the question about who Jesus is, the answers all revolve around people or famous figures in Israel's history. And the potential answers on the table can be a little confusing. Why would people have thought Jesus was John the Baptist or Elijah? Also, who is Elijah? Jesus affirms Peter declaring that Jesus is God's Messiah, but then in the next line, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. To make it more complicated, the parallel account in the gospel according to Matthew adds Jeremiah as another rumored candidate for who Jesus was. And in that account, Peter also confesses that Jesus is, quote, the son of the living God. Putting it all together, it seems like we've got several figures and titles floating around for who people thought Jesus was and who Jesus believed he was. And to make matters more complicated, there were similar debates around who people thought John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin and partner in proclaiming the kingdom of God, was. The Gospel according to John, no relation to John the Baptist, records one such debate. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, Then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Finally, they said, Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. And if you're thinking, Okay, that gives me a little more clarity on who thinks who is who. I should add the wrinkle that the gospel according to Matthew might answer the same question about John the Baptist a little differently. The disciples asked Jesus, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished." in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Okay, the crowds are confused, we're confused, John the Baptist himself might be confused, so we should spend some time today sorting this all out. So here are the key things that we're going to tackle with our text today. First, who are all the famous figures uh, we're associating with Jesus? Where did they come from? Second, who does Jesus think he is with respect to all these figures? And third, what does this all mean for how we understand Jesus today? Let's sort out who all the major figures are, and we'll start with John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin and partner in ushering the kingdom of God during Jesus' lifetime. We often forget how remarkably similar John the Baptist's and Jesus' ministries were. Both were set apart from their mother's wombs. They traveled the Judean area preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, calling Israelites to repent and be baptized, upsetting the religious establishment, calling out political leaders for their hypocrisy, and ultimately getting executed by those leaders. Given these compelling similarities, and the fact that many people believe so strongly that John the Baptist was the real deal, even after John the Baptist died, people wondered if Jesus was John the Baptist back from the dead. After all, if God really was ushering in God's kingdom, the expectation was that Israel's enemies would be the ones dying, not Israel's heroes. It appears that a lot of people associated John the Baptist with Elijah, a prominent prophet in Israel's tradition. The books of First and Second Kings tell the story of Elijah, a great prophet and miracle worker in northern Israel about 900 years before the time of Jesus. His resume included opposing the corrupt King Ahab and Baal worship, bringing a widow's son back to life, and overseeing a school of prophets. But perhaps the most fascinating part of his legacy in the Bible is that he technically doesn't seem to die. Rather, later in life, after he and his apprentice Elisha cross the Jordan River, a chariot of fire and horses appear and sweep Elijah up into heaven, leaving Elisha to carry on the prophetic tradition. This is actually where the phrase chariots of fire comes from. It's precisely this kind of epic non-death that can give rise to legends about someone's ultimate fate. The book of Malachi, the last prophetic book of the Old Testament, says that God will send Elijah, quote, "...before the great and terrible day of the Lord." Not surprisingly, then, by the time we get to Jesus' day, there are many Jews in Judea expecting that Elijah himself will literally return as part of God's work to finally usher in God's kingdom in its fullness. Many Jews all over the world recently observed Passover, which to this day often includes a tradition in which celebrants leave a door open for Elijah to come and join them. Because of the way both John the Baptist and Jesus so powerfully channeled the prophetic voice and really seemed to be shaking things up in Israel, people wondered if either one of them could be Elijah returning to finish the job. So what do we make of the fact that John the Baptist seems to deny being Elijah in the gospel according to John, but Jesus seems to affirm that John the Baptist was Elijah in the other gospel accounts? Well, it's hard to say. Some interpreters have suggested maybe John was just denying that he was literally Elijah returned from heaven. Uh, Others have suggested that maybe John the Baptist was still figuring out exactly who he was in God's story. The latter is certainly possible. Even John the Baptist had expectations about what God's reign would look like. Uh, Remember, just a couple chapters earlier in the Gospel according to Luke, when John the Baptist is imprisoned and facing execution, he starts to second guess whether Jesus really is the Messiah. From context, it appears that his doubts stem from the question that if he and Jesus really were ushering in God's kingdom, why is he in jail and Herod seems to have all the power? Execution seems like defeat. This is a key source of dissonance that we'll come back to a little later. Either way, whether he fully understood his role or his connection with the legendary Elijah, John the Baptist made it clear at every point that while he was part of Israel's prophetic tradition, he was not the Messiah and that his role was to prepare the way for the Messiah. So what about these other messianic figures people were associating with John the Baptist or Jesus? Why would some people be wondering if Jesus was Jeremiah or the prophet or one of the prophets of long ago? We talked about this in some detail about a year and a half ago when we were teaching through Deuteronomy, specifically in chapter 18, which describes a future time when God would send another prophet like Moses who will truly represent God's will to the people. I encourage you to check out that lesson if you weren't there for it. For the purposes of our discussion today, I just want to call out that passages like that gave rise to and fueled expectations that when God returned to fully restore Israel and usher in the kingdom, there could be any number of figures involved in that achievement one prophet or several like Moses or Jeremiah, a priest like Aaron, a king like David. As you can tell from all of the passages we discussed today, there was no precise roll call or checklist of messianic expectations so much as there was one consistent expectation. Whoever these figures were, they would conquer Israel's enemies, overthrow the rulers of this world, reestablish the kingdom of Israel, and reign without threat from then on. It's that expectation, really, that makes it hard for even Jesus' own disciples to pin down who Jesus is. Because they hear Jesus saying, love your neighbor, bless those who curse you, pray for those who persecute you, and die for your enemy. And to them, understandably, that doesn't seem like the path to freedom. It's at this point that we should get to who Jesus thinks he is. Jesus cuts through the fog of all these rumors and and hopes that people have and asks Peter the question directly. Peter uh, Peter confesses that Jesus is God's Messiah, and Jesus affirms that confession. In other gospel accounts, Jesus says it was God who revealed that truth to Peter. But the narrative takes a hard, unexpected turn for Peter when Jesus immediately follows that up with, Don't tell anyone. Also, I'm going to be rejected and executed by the religious establishment. Also, I'm going to rise again in three days. So much for that beautiful moment of understanding that they were having. Here, Jesus' follow-up raises a couple of new questions. If there are a lot of rumors out there about who Jesus is, but Peter knows the truth, why would Jesus want his disciples to keep it a secret? And if he's telling the disciples that he's going to come back from the dead in three days, then what's the big deal about him getting killed? Addressing these questions will help us appreciate just what it means for Peter and all of us today to confess that Jesus is the Messiah. First, Jesus' puzzling request to keep his identity on the down low has gotten a lot of attention from Bible scholars over the centuries, often being referred to as the messianic secret. That, of course, is not to be confused with the other messianic secret, which is how did a first-century Palestinian Jewish carpenter get that porcelain skin and gorgeous penetrating blue eyes? The answer is racism. The context here in Luke actually gives us some hints at why Jesus would want to keep things under wraps for a bit longer. The last time Jesus publicly announced who he was in Luke 4, it almost got him lynched in his hometown. Remember, too, that Jesus' bigger ministry has only just begun, and Jesus' partner and forerunner was just executed for doing a lot of the same things Jesus is doing in his own ministry. Jesus is drawing large crowds and attracting a lot of attention, and we know that Herod wants to learn more about the situation and even meet Jesus. Well, the last time John the Baptist met Herod, Herod beheaded him. So Jesus knows he's already flirting with death. And although Jesus believes execution is where his story is ultimately headed, he's highly strategic about how he wants the final showdown between him and the religious and political establishments to go. So here we get a glimpse of Jesus thoughtfully working out how he can make the best use of the short time he believes he has in his ministry. Second, many Bible readers often wonder if Jesus repeatedly told his disciples that he was going to come back three days after he died, why did not a single one of them seem to remember that important detail after Jesus actually died? You'd think they would have written that down so as not to forget it. Here, it's important for us not to get all judgy with our hindsight bias. We've already talked about how messianic expectations in Jesus's day made no room for God's king to suffer ultimate defeat at the hands of God's enemies. And Jesus's disciples had just confessed to him that they really believed he was the real deal. And Jesus just affirmed to them that he was. So when he follows that up with, By the way, my enemies are going to kill me. You can bet that that's the part that they would think they misunderstood. And when the disciples heard Jesus saying he would come back in three days after his death, for them it probably evoked images like this from their ancient prophetic tradition. Hosea says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for God has torn us to pieces, but God will heal us. God has wounded us, but God will bind up our wounds. After two days, God will revive us. On the third day, God will raise us up, that we may live in God's presence. In context, this passage is about how even though Israel's unjust and oppressive sins may drive them into exile— God will ultimately restore them, and God won't take forever to do it, poetically represented as just a few days. It's possible that the disciples thought that Jesus was channeling language like this to just mean that even though things are going to look bleak, God will ultimately rescue him, or that God will raise Jesus up, but on Judgment Day, somewhere in the distant future. And if you read the Gospel accounts of Jesus' arrest trial and execution you can see how the disciples would have genuinely felt that whatever rescue mission jesus had in mind it must have failed when john the baptist faces execution he sends a message of doubt to jesus Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect another? Herod struggles to take the rumors about Jesus seriously uh, because apparently it's so easy for him to just execute these alleged messiahs. In hearing about Jesus, Herod says, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? When Jesus is chained and beaten up, awaiting his own execution, Pontius Pilate is incredulous that he's talking to anybody with any real power, asking Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? All of this is exactly why, in Matthew's account of Peter's confession, as soon as Jesus confides that he must suffer and be executed by the religious leaders and rise on the third day, Peter rebukes Jesus, saying, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But no, Jesus says, This is how it has to be. That is how big God's love is. And it takes Jesus the suffering son of man, the Messiah, the son of the living God, the capital P prophet for us to see that. Thank God though, we do have hindsight as the disciples eventually did. Witnessing Jesus's execution and resurrection breathed new meaning into the confession they made that Jesus is God's Messiah. And the same is true for us. For many of us, we've confessed that Jesus is God's Messiah from before we could read or write, but we've spent our lives layering meaning onto it to appreciate that following God's Messiah also means doing the hard work of standing up to oppressive forces, sacrificing ourselves for the sake of others, and absorbing the suffering of the vulnerable. And it truly is hard work. It's not a coincidence that the very next passage— Which Pastor Danielle will teach on next week, has Jesus saying, If anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. This is actually the hardest part of confessing that Jesus is the Messiah. It's living up to this calling. And I'm sure many of us are painfully aware of all of the ways in which we fall short of this calling. Many of us recognize the famous quote from Gandhi, I like your Christ, so even using Messiah language. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Except that we don't really have any evidence that Gandhi actually said that. So that completes yet another installment of stuff Gandhi never said, but we like to quote in sermons. Even so, it goes without saying these days that living up to our messianic confession is a struggle. But if any of you had followed the life and lyrics of rapper DMX, who sadly passed away just over a week ago, you can see in his own life why many followers of Jesus respect the struggle and find it absolutely worthwhile, even if we come up short. And I know that many of us listening right now don't really know what to make of Jesus. Well, I offer you to consider, as a starting point, who Jesus thought he was and how that affected his earliest followers. Jesus definitely gave off some major Elijah vibes. He fit in beautifully with Israel's prophetic tradition. He represented the best of Moses or Jeremiah or any other prophet people could think of. But Peter recognized that he was in the presence of someone greater than any of them, someone for whom the most appropriate title is Messiah, son of the living God. Jesus is not just a sage offering inspirational quotes to get you through the day. He's not just a teacher whose classes you can listen in on. He's not just a prophet forecasting where the world is headed while we just wait for it to happen. He's the Messiah, the true king of the universe, who is inviting us to join him in identifying with and taking on the suffering of those around us to show the world what it's like when loving your neighbor rules the world and Herod and Pilate and Caesar don't. We've now reached our time together where we all celebrate Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection as the true uniting force that destroys injustice, oppression, violence, and sin in this world as God's answer to everything we hope for to make the world right. We do this by keeping the tradition established from the beginning, as the scriptures say, in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you, and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me.